0: Thanks for tuning in to All Bodies Outside. This is your host, Dr. Ryan Peterson. Today's guest is Dr. Sandy Heath, who is a professor of Parks and Recreation Management at Northern Arizona University. She has extensive experience serving as an outdoor guide and instructed at the National Outdoor Leadership School. Dr. Heath's PhD dissertation researched queer experiences in outdoor recreation and was titled Queering the Outdoors, 2LGBTQIA+, Identity and Outdoor Recreation. Dr. Heath, thank you so much for coming on to Old Bodies Outside.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, how does it feel to be called doctor?
1: Oh, it feels great. <laughs> well, it, feels, it feels good that it's the project's done.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, Yeah. I, always, I don't refer to myself as a as doctor too much, uh, and I don't think too many researchers do. There's a few here and there, but uh it, it's always good to get that dissertation behind it sounds like you've got a good start to your career going to nau which has got to be just a ton of fun living in flagstaff
1: oh yeah i got super lucky um everyone was super nice and during the interview process and uh yeah it's been it's been so fun being outdoors here just the short time i've been here so we moved here in july
0: okay uh, yeah, you got you great access to, you know, the Flagstaff area, great access probably down at Sedona, uh, so that's just got to be a ton of fun.
1: It is, it's awesome. We actually just got a ton of snow this week. Oh, wow, uh, how I much? I don't, I don't know if y'all have, uh, around three feet, and we're supposed to get more today and tomorrow, so. Oh
0: my gosh, yeah. I wish we got three feet here. In like, <laughs> Kansas, we just kind of get uh, icy, cruddy snow that's usually about an inch, and that's it, and just clogs up the roadways. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So it's been, we've been playing outside every day, which is nice.
0: Nice. And what types uh, of stuff is that, that you're doing outside right now?
1: Uh, there, there's some cool, so I'm not a very good skier, but I, I split board. So there's some really cool Hills around, uh, that just have enough snow on them now or where we can go out there and, and play around on them. Um, uh, mm-hmm. and then there's a really cool mountain in town, uh, Mount Eldon. Um, okay. And uh, is, is the name of the trail. Um, and I try to go up that a couple of days a week, which is really nice.
0: Oh, gosh, uh, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Flags, that's quite the place to live. So, when did you, for me, I got into outdoor recreation mm-hmm. running cross country in high school and college. And that kind of gave me the confidence to start backpacking and camping and hiking. And so, when did you get into outdoor recreation?
1: I would say uh, I always enjoyed being outdoors as a kid uh, and running around. I had a ton of energy. Um, and and I would also say that it was kind of a release from school. Um, I had a learning disability in school, so going outside and recess, uh, that, was, <laughs> that was always the best. Um, and then, gosh, I... I did a lot of like swimming in lakes and creeks and and things like that, uh, but not like what we would think of as outdoor recreation, um, like maybe maybe organized outdoor recreation, like uh, you know trail running or or those sorts of things. Until I got older, um, I ended up being a, a ski bum, and when I was eighteen and moving out to Mammoth Lakes. Um, California and working at the ski resort, which that was kind of my college experience, uh, living in employee housing and uh, working up at the mountain. But that's kind of where I learned about everything. Uh, that's where I learned to ski and, and saw snow. And uh, and then in the the summertime, you know, you're you're chatting with people that you're working with. What, what are their summer plans? What's up next? And that was rafting for a lot of people. So okay. Uh, that's when I figured out what rafting was and, uh, you know, figured that out, <laughs> tried, tried guide training um, and learned all about that. And then kind of, you know, it just uh, by word of mouth, it kind of went from there uh, to, to other adventures. That's where I learned, uh, went bouldering for the first time. I was like, man, nice. this rock climbing thing's hard and it's scary. Oh, man, but I love it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Mammoth Lakes is, I mean, you're, you're, you've are you're been so lucky you live in Flagstaff right now. You lived in Mammoth Lakes. I'm like, gosh, Mammoth Lakes is like an epicenter for outdoor recreation. I mean, you have, the, you know, the big mountains for the wintertime. But then during the summer, you got so much access to different stuff. And immediately that came to mind for me was Red's Meadow. Um, did you ever go down to Red's Meadow and kind of go out of there into the Sierra Nevada?
1: Not a ton. You know, when I was living there, I didn't have a lot of... Everything was so new. So I was really dependent on the people around me to teach me how to be in the outdoors. Um, And so I did a lot of like uh, really, I guess, controlled, not back country, front-ish country, um, front and side country recreation, I would say. So not a ton of hiking, more of like drive up and and hang out type of stuff. But I wish I would have at the time. I've been back since and and done some stuff um, around. But, yeah.
0: Well, I also, the second piece I'm a little bit jealous of is, so I I did the traditional route and went right into undergrad at 18. And uh, after I got out of doing my bachelor's degree, I romanticized a lot about the outdoors and spent a lot of time in the outdoors and i was i it was always on the in my brain like gosh i should go be a, a ski bum somewhere but i didn't know how to ski and so i was intimidated to do that and so did you show up to mammoth uh lakes mammoth mountain not knowing how to ski
1: yes wow <laughs>
0: yes
1: but I, but I knew i really wanted to
0: that's awesome yeah like i know the passion's there i gotta develop the skill
1: (laughs) yeah i can get this and it was just a lot of like i worked as a a tech uh tuning skis in the rental shop um yeah and then you know uh followed people around whoever would hang out with me there's a lot of falling involved
0: (laughs) yeah 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 wait You definitely have an adventurous soul and brave soul to just you know what get up and move from Texas to Mammoth Lakes. Where did you even did you even know anyone there?
1: I didn't. um, (laughs) We there's a little bit of a joke with that. Um, Well, I'll I'll back up. I was uh, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and um, I went to a rural. School, rural, country school, um, outside of San Antonio for three years um, in high school, and uh, I, I really wanted to go to college. Um, and I may have lost you, Brian. Are you there? No, I'm here. Oh, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here.
0: Yeah, you're still coming through. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so you were going to a small school in rural San Antonio.
1: Yes, outside of San Antonio, um, and around graduation time, and that was, you know, that was. Uh, I was figuring out my queer identity at the time as well, um, and I really wanted to go to college. Um, I played uh, softball, and I thought I could get a scholarship doing that. Um, and uh, I played French horn in orchestra, and was was looking for a scholarship for that. One of the two. Um, and, and trying to go to school and that, that was, you know, when, um, I, I think a barrier to going to college too at the time was, um, having to fill everything out by paper instead of having like internet applications was really hard, uh, to get like down to the schools and, and, and do that. Uh, but I, in high school, as I was figuring out my career identity, um, ran into some issues with the school and ended up uh, not being denied my recommendations to go to college and had, there was some wow. paperwork issues because of that. And there are some barriers there. So I was like, gosh, what am I gonna do? Uh, where, <laughs> like, what's next? Um, and I started like just looking at, I'm like, well, I could work a minimum wage job anywhere let's go somewhere else. And I happened to see Mammoth Lakes had this flyer, where they were trying to attract uh, people like internationally and from different places around the US. Um, So I called and applied. And they said, Okay, I'll meet you on this date at the Carson City Airport. (laughs) And uh, or the Reno Airport. um, And I was like, all right. So I just booked a one-way ticket, and I had a jar of peanut butter and a loaf of bread in my backpack. <laughs> and like, lived off of that till I got paid, uh, you know, in Mammoth, and just hoped it worked out, you know. Uh, and it did. It was awesome, and it it led me to uh, like the next, you know, two decades of my life, which is good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and you've done such amazing research uh, since then. But, you know, with this this story of heading to, to Mammoth Lakes, was that more of something that you were just feeling excluded from society and was trying to escape that a little bit? Or is that something where you're just like, I just want a big adventure?
1: I think as a kid, like, my mind, like, who knows what I was thinking. <laughs> but I think I, I just wanted uh, – another environment because the one that I was in wasn't working for me, you know, and, and, and I kind of found that through my research too. So I ended up uh, being a ski bomb, you know, until um, my early thirties is when I went to get my undergraduate degree. And then I just stayed straight through. Um, And I think like through that, uh, you know, getting to adventure for a while and then because of that experience I was kind of nervous or intimidated to go to school like to navigate that system and you know in my research I I found that it's like I found great solace anecdotally from my own experience I found great solace in the outdoors and by having that opportunity having an infrastructure set up for Employees like Mammoth Lakes did for their employees was great for someone who's uh, a, a young adult, you know, trying to navigate life. Like it's a great environment, and it, it it saved me in a lot of ways. But also, like over those years, that decade until I went to school, um, I also noticed some things that I didn't have words for, that I didn't understand. Uh, and, and it was, um, the prevalence of dominant culture, like, oh gosh, there are things here that I, I just don't have words for and, um, I need to figure out my place with it, figure out what I'm, um, contributing to. And, um, yeah, so that, that was all that led me to my dissertation topic. I actually didn't want to uh, research that at all, but I felt like I needed to, to get to the topic that I wanted to research. <laughs> so uh, when, when we were starting to read the literature, so that was a little bit of a tangent there, Brian, but.
0: <laughs> no, that, w- that was wonderful. And I think like, um, you know, one of the things, I, I read your dissertation before, the high majority of your dissertation, I think six chapters, I think is it eight chapters total. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Something like that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things that, like, I, I feel like is, is pretty challenging is whether to, you know, we all have, everyone has a multidimensional, like, identity to themselves. And it's very multidimensional. But, like, in, the, in a hegemonic, heteronormative culture, some not everyone can come out and say, hey, this is, you know, what my identity is. There may not be an affirming space, may not be inclusive. Um, and so how did you navigate some of those spaces? Because I feel like with your experiences, say like, if I don't know how long some of the, um, instructing and guiding you did, if it was days or weeks or say 45 days, but some of these, uh, situations can really get you into an isolated area with a group of people you don't know, and you really don't have an escape. And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds super kind of intimidating and almost unsafe in a way. There
1: was a ton of, uh really cool stories that came out um when i was chatting with the the participants in the study and just so many cool stories that um some i identified with personally and and some um i didn't but but could understand were they might not be close to my experience but gosh i could totally understand Where they were coming from, and so uh, I had six participants in the in the study, and it ended up um, I ended up having to scrap half the study because I just had too much good data, which I was afraid I wouldn't have enough. So that's a good problem to have. I'm psyched. (laughs) Like (laughs) good deal. Um, Yeah. But so many really people were, and and to note um, the. Participants in the study were all professionals who've worked past or present in the outdoor industry, and uh, they had so many good perspectives to share, so many rich perspectives, and were so willing to share. And I think uh, talking about queer identity or marginalized identities in general, the erasure of the of these identities in certain realms, certain spaces. Um, uh, I think folks are just really cite to, to share their experience and to get it out there because, um, when it's not shared and when it is suppressed, when it is erased is when we don't know, you know, about our, 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 the people we live around in society. Right.
0: Um, yeah. And I feel yeah. like you wouldn't be able to, if you don't know those experiences, how could you, provides as inclusive of a space probably, right? Like it's, and I feel like if you can't, you know, be yourself, your experience is gonna be limited and that's that's not good at all.
1: Totally, and yeah, and some of the the stories I heard were like, uh, you know, navigating those dominant spaces. I think it's pervasive. Something mm-hmm. that I learned was that it's, it's everywhere and it's in these really uh, subtle ways. And um, that can be like, gosh, uh, you know, some of uh, uh, what folks are talking about are uh, clothing that's made. You know, why are certain colors of clothing made for certain genders, you know, or certain sizes made or, or so forth? Like that can be challenging for people, um, for, for gender identity. And one of the things that came up uh, was a uh, uh, participant was like, yeah, I need a lighter pair of skis when I ski patrol uh, for my stature. Yeah. But, you know, I I'm, identify as um, transmasculine. So like, I, I the only way to get skis that fit my body type, have to be have flowers on them and not match my gender identity. And so that can be super challenging. Um, And so that's one example of that. But gosh, there's so many subtle ways that and and how history sneaks into uh, uh, how we talk, acronyms we use, um, stories that are passed along that are subtle cues for someone who's not part of that non-dominant identity, those are subtle cues of, ah, uh, you're not quite safe here. You're not qu- like, keep on guard, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, and so um, let's use that to kind of talk about first off the springboard of your research and like, why was it relevant? Um, and so I think like it's it's worthy to talk about some of these constructs that come from colonialism um, that led to this dominant culture that we're talking about right now. Cool. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yes. And
1: and in the outdoors, uh, specifically, gosh, there's so many, (laughs) there's so many little things that we can, we can dive into. Um, What's a good example? Oh, gosh. Uh, As far as outdoor education goes, uh, Kurt Hahn, right? The founder of Outward Bound and a lot of the curriculum that has dispersed widely in our profession and how we teach outdoors um, was like profoundly heterosexist. He was very anti-queer, anti-gay. And so when we're quoting Kurt Hahn or we're uh, passing down some of his teachings, uh, that can get sticky. You know, we don't, we're, we're taking it third, fourth, fifth, sixth hand, you know, like the game of telephone. Without understanding where some of the sentiment came from, and that's how that can sneak into our everyday interactions. Uh, I, one of the participants in, in the study um, identifies as two spirit, and um, did teach, um, you know, for for programs like that or instruct for for these types of programs and um, did talk about having uh, trouble with, and I don't know if you read that in the paper, the quotes, but had trouble um, resonating and passing on some of this when teaching and instructing the outdoors for indigenous students. So like uh, certain things that we might do like circling up uh, the participant in the study was like, yeah, that's not really needed when I'm with um, uh, students from my community, indigenous students from my community. We go on the outdoors. We don't have to do the, these certain things that uh, are, are thought to be good for the outdoors are thought to be, um, you know, good leadership techniques. To, to lead a group outdoors or, or so forth, good communi- communication techniques. Um, those aren't necessarily what this participant said, those aren't necessarily um, helpful with, with certain populations. Or challenging our idea of who we see as a leader, right? Like can someone who expresses their gender identity in a very, flamboyant way can they be perceived as a competent mountaineering guide will people follow them right yeah that's how some of this kind of comes up like oh they're very competent they're very skilled in the outdoors but because they express their identity in a certain way then they're not recognized as having those competencies and on the flip side um, you know our, our then passed up for opportunities, right? They don't fit the idea of a leader. And so in order to advance in their career, they have to act a certain way, suppress that queer identity and act in a way, a heteronormative way of what we think of as the expedition leader um, in those scenarios. So that was another big like theme that came
0: up. Yeah, I think I remember that with, uh, one of the participants that you identified are named as to cover up their identity, Arthur mm-hmm. with kayaking and Arthur, was it Arthur oh, that talked yes. about, um, you know, uh, and I don't remember Arthur's pronouns, but, uh, Arthur was, he, Arthur was, uh, very into mastering kayaking because of exactly what you just described.
1: Absolutely. Yes. He didn't, uh... And, at the, and one of his statements was, again, these are pseudonyms, but one of his statements was, uh, everyone behind his back called him Gay Arthur, right? And so he, uh, to show that he was competent and able to do these big rivers in his kayak, um, you know, acted more masculine. He, he hid that part of himself. Um, and, so, and there's a toll... That,
0: Absolutely. that
1: that takes for sure on a person. And it, it really impacts mental health as well.
0: Yeah, and, and yeah. there's a, you know, like right now we're just talking situational, but there's mm-hmm. that cumulative impact. I mean, this just adds up and adds up and adds up and it's it's gotta have, can have some big psychological impacts for sure. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't see why not.
1: For sure. And then I, I think another big one is uh, the career advancement right? Mm -hmm. So just getting passed up for promotions. And and gosh, and as you know, like, the outdoor industry is all about uh, getting opportunities to enhance your skill set, right? How do you build competency in the outdoors? How do you get the mileage to be really great in the outdoors? Um, And being missing out on those trips on those uh, opportunities for certain uh, workloads you know, to go on certain courses or whatnot. Uh, it can yeah. have an exponential effect on your career. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I can see that it can have an exponential effect in your career. It could also lead people down career paths that maybe they don't even want to do. So, that, you know, like tokenism, uh, OK, we're going to hire this person so that they can be on our diversity, equity, inclusion program. But we're not going to honor all the skills that they bring as a person. I could see that happening too. Totally,
1: and you must be talking about JC, the uh, game warden in the yep. study, who was like, "I don't want to apply for any DEI positions. I just want because I check all the boxes. Like, I want to be a, a game warden captain. That's what I want to do. I'm gonna. Right. I don't want a DEI position, but that's the only way I can promote. You know. Um. You're absolutely right. And yeah.
0: Oh, go for oh, it. I, go mean ahead. <laughs> okay, oh, I was sorry. just
1: going <laughs> to say I'm talking off the top of my head, but uh, it also leads, I think, to location, too. You are right. kind of talking about rural environments um, and where you live. And the outdoor, working in the outdoors is one of those things where your community is, for a time, you know, if you're doing an outdoor course. It's the people around you. It's your colleagues are your community for a moment. Uh, If you've moved to a place to work in a small community, uh, you're there with work. Uh, And so there can be so much intertwined in that that you don't want to rock the boat uh, and ask for what you need uh, because you're so entrenched in the culture that's there. Um, It's hard to speak up. Yeah,
0: I could see that like there'd be a certain type of gatekeeping almost.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, one of our participants, um, you know, spoke about living on a small island and, uh, was, yeah, just had trouble during the election, the 2016 election, um, and, uh, you know, ended up having to leave the field, um, the the students found out that they were transitioning, like doing gender affirming, uh, the gender affirming process of transitioning and was in, in the middle of that and ended up getting pulled from the field because of that. and uh, And just spoke about what that was like um, and just had some really great insights on how some of this is kind of handled in the field now, when you're talking um, all the resources spent to do a medical evac on someone. This is a social science situation. Like it's not. This is a social barrier that's happening. This is discrimination happening, and you're going to spend tons of resources to med evac someone from the field because of the situation. Uh, it, it really links to an organization's priorities and things like that. Um, the the hope is you know this was a few years ago so the hope is that we're moving forward but but in that i think it's important especially um with the suppression that's happening now that we talk about it right so it is good uh to to say the things people's realities people's experiences what they've lived can, can kind of be hard to hear you're like oh gosh that is too hard. No way that happened. But yeah, it's it it has happened, and people are starting to speak out about it, you know. And some of our beloved institutions in outdoor recreation culture uh, do need to be looked at uh, and, and really talked about in an honest way, uh, so that we can start to pick them apart for sure.
0: Yeah, and that that reaction of uh, someone, you know, saying, Hey, I had a bad experience, this happened, it made me feel isolated, excluded, unsafe and then the reaction being, No, you interpreted that wrong and it's just like, Oh my gosh, like that like I've heard that happen to Um, some colleagues and friends of mine. And it's just like the psychological aspect of that where it's almost like you've lived the experience. That was your reality. Now you're being told it's not. um, Oh, wow. That would make my mind spin.
1: For sure. Yeah, and there's tons of people doing really good work out there. Um, And and I would say uh, making space for that um, I did find some of, uh, what I found in the study, like final thoughts were, um, uh, trying to attack ambiguity in your life. Uh, so in your social patterns and then also in your organization, right. Uh, and there's a really cool researcher, Hannah Bolin, that talks about ambiguity as well. And, uh, if. If you don't explicitly connect the dots in your policies, your practices, um, how your organization runs, where you came from, your history, if you don't connect those dots, then everyone is subjectively left to fill in those spaces. And when we fill in the spaces, the research is saying that filling in the spaces fills in a dominant a dominant narrative, uh, and, and that's the knee-jerk is to fill in with the dominant narrative. And that's even for people, even if there is not a person in the room that believes in uh, practicing heterosexism, right? Like it can be queer people who, um, and, and queer allies who want a queer space will still be left to fill in a dominant narrative uh, and so that's super interesting as well. When you think about it's, it that way too, you're like, oh gosh, we're all kind of pushed in ingrained. this direction. Yeah, it's ingrained yeah. for sure.
0: Yeah, it's ingrained. Um, but I, I, I love the terminology queering and uh, I love how inclusive it is. And with the title of your dissertation, Queering the Outdoors, um, one of the things I, I enjoyed about your dissertation, it's a typical in dissertations, just giving the definitions at the start so that you can make sure that we all agree on the definitions as we go forward with the rest of the research. And um, Queering the Outdoors, I love how inclusive it is. Uh, it is an inclusive term uh, and it, it, it is inclusive of fluidity um, and change and whatnot. And so, how long did it take you to settle on uh, your title of your dissertation?
1: Oh, that came pretty quick. Did it? Like, okay. Let's, let's, let's queer the outdoors.
0: Yeah. Like,
1: let's, let's all do it. Heck yeah.
0: Uh, in your dissertation and with your research, one of the things that you, your, one of the approaches that you used, and it, it's so relevant, and uh, I learned a lot from your dissertation, and the topic that I want to bring up is intersectionality. Um, and uh, first off, do you want to explain what that is and why it was important for your research and why it's just important in general?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, for my research, it was important to see, um, you know, uh, people are dynamic and ever changing. Right. And um, it's important to note that. And so like intersectionality, a lot of times we it, it's talked about as a literal intersection. It's like, oh, when outdoors meets Queer identity—that's an intersection, right? Uh, but really, like um, Dr. Crenshaw um, and Dr. Collins, uh, you know, when they were thinking about intersectionality, it—it um, it, it, it came from Dr. Crenshaw, who looked at um, a, a GM General Motors legal case that happened, and looking back at that legal case, it was. Uh, Black women were wanting to work for General Motors and they were told they couldn't work there. They were discriminated against. And they said, we have, General Motors said publicly, we have, uh, we have jobs for white women, clerical jobs, and we have jobs for black men, labor jobs, but we don't have jobs for black women. And they, uh, General Motors won the lawsuit because uh, the, the women in this case were rendered invisible because of their intersecting identities, right? Uh, being Black and being a, wom- uh, being a woman at the same time in this country made them fall between the, the law of they weren't being discriminated against because of race and they weren't being discriminated against because of gender, right? And so um, that's kind of that's where that came from. And then Collins expanded that into a praxis. And I think with this, we have to look at everything from this lens, and it, it's um, an extension of, you know, I think, a uh, feminist theory and queer theory. I think they all kind of come under this um, intersectionality brings all of this together critical race theory it brings all of it to one place um where we can look at the individual in in the individual's entirety right we're not putting people into lanes and saying you must all people exist in this one way um and gosh like not to go too off topic, but if you check out like Queer Ecology and Queer Mycology, and, and you started uh, uh, there, there's this really cool um, book and it's almost a children's book, but it's called Queer Ducks. And um, it, it just talks about, not quite a children's book, I may have overspoke over there, but uh, <laughs> um, it talks about research and how, um, you Know how we name things, so taxon- taxonomy, you know, how we name mm-hmm. things is rooted in Christian, uh, Eurocentric um, viewpoints, a so Eurocentric Christian lens, and so that means, um, science the way that we categorize things in science is, um, and we talk about history, we have to know that history. There, there is roots of that sneak in that are heterosexist that are racist um, that that we have to peel back before we build on top and so that was part of the research as well i don't want to build uh, i didn't want to build research on top of already discriminatory practices or a history of of discrimination it was important to to start peeling that back and start, you know, um, starting to, to read and see what those histories were and kind of discover that along the way. So intersectionality as a framework, as part of the framework of that project helped to do that, Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, and with your, your research participants, how did you mm-hmm. first start off with understanding um, this multidimensionality of people. How did you um, start understanding the intersectionality of this person? Because one of the things that was so wonderful about your research was actually the variety of experiences that uh, were out there in outdoor recreation. Um, And that was something that I actually found was very profound. But how did you, with your research participants get stuff going so that you started to understand their intersectionality of their gender, sexuality? how did you do that?
1: Yeah. So I started with, uh, Reflexivity, which I I had to start with, where am I at? Uh, Because as a researcher, you get to make a ton of choices, right? And uh, even quantitative, you get to make a ton of subjective choices of how you're going to design something. And being honest and putting that out there is a vulnerable practice for someone who's new at it, like I am. Uh, But I thought it was important to put that out there um, and, and show what my process was and what I was thinking, um, during the process. And so I started with that. Um, and then I created checks and balances for myself to solve for my biases along the way to, or at least be honest and brutally honest about my biases throughout the research project. Um, and so that happened. I, um, you know, reached out to participants. I tried to, to make the sample large. I got a ton of people from all over who were really interested in it. And then I noticed um, in qualitative, when I was reading about <laughs> how do you make a research project? Uh, you, you know, it's it said, oh, you don't wanna, uh, you wanna be uh, you want to generalize right? And I was like no, I don't want to generalize that's a problem. generalizing leads to dominance and that ambiguity. Um, I didn't know the ambiguity at the time that came up later but uh, that ended up uh, coming together in the end like I don't want to generalize because um, people who have been marginalized are not part of that you know um, we talk about things like women's health, queer health care. Uh, it's not based, uh, historically, health care is not based on a queer body, right? So it's, right. it's tough to get good health care, these sorts of things. So with all of that in mind, uh, that, that was part of structuring the design for the project. We ended up, so I, I said, I want the greatest diversity and experiences, and we'll take those participants and see if they wanna be a part of the study. And they did. We had um, six participants uh, who were amazing from, and who have wonderful life stories. There is an age uh, range. So we had um, participants who, a participant who was at the the top of their career, who had been uh, in their profession for uh, 50 years, I believe. 40, 40 plus maybe. Uh, we had a, a participant who was newer in their career. You know, had been around five years in their career. So there was some of that. Uh, people who we had more of the management side. So um, and like fish and game side. So the the game warden to outdoor instructor uh, to uh, indigenous uh, trapping line to um, guides, professional guides to community community leader. Uh, the kayaker was a, also a community uh, leader um, and professional photographer. So it, it was really nice that folks were willing to share um, and, and be available because it was a, quite a time commitment. After that initial reach out, um, and people spoke about their identity in a demographic survey in their own words. So they were free to express their, with, with a few prompts. we um, were free to express that. And then we had a, an interview, and the interviews didn't have a time to them. So uh, they were totally open-ended. And whenever the participant felt like they were done, <laughs> then we were done. Um, it also had a photo voice component. So the second interview was a photo voice project where they went out, took pictures, um, that represented their life as an outdoor professional. Cool. And then we had a second interview talking about those pictures. And that was really cool too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really time consumptive stuff. Um, and uh, kudos to all those participants, kudos to you for doing that research. Um, you know, one of the things that you brought up there was that you allowed, uh, space in that kind of just initial survey for people to self-identify and whatnot. I am, I I can't, I I hate this. I I just don't enjoy, I'm not like the surveys that say, Hey, identify yourself male, female or other. I'm like, who wants to put down as other? Like that's, that's horrible. (laughs) And so I'm glad that you did that. And I mean, I'm sure like that was something that, you know, it was on the front of your mind right from the start
1: absolutely yeah we wanted to know exactly how people um and and just uh let folks chat about it too that's an opportunity um to to give ideas about identity as well so it's nice yeah
0: so as you you went through you did your research um you you know did all the different thematic coding and you know dug into those interviews um, what are the implications that came out of your research um, that I know one of the things that you mentioned was, you know, it's you've identified that we're outdoor recreation is kind of seeing the problem here, but we still got a lot of steps to go. But what were, what were the implications of your research? So two,
1: um, and we've already kind of talked about them. two takeaways for, uh, for organizations are to uh, create structural pathways for queer people and you know that means um you know anything from identifying and eliminating those ambiguities in your processes so uh, an example of that would be harassment policies right um uh, what when considering your organization's harassment policy um be very clear about the realities of the process from start to finish. Like, sure, you might have a harassment policy, but uh, does, the harassment policy, does the harassment policy include clients or students um, or community members? You're inviting uh, professionals to come live in a community to work. Uh, what is that community like? You know uh is it will it be welcoming um and uh the other thing is you know in those policies writing out like if you're living in a a small community and your entire community is also your colleagues and it's also your boss um then reporting harassment can be tough so you have to make Pathways. It can be socially detrimental, right, to report harassment. You might not like something that's happening all the time to you, uh, but you, you don't report it because it's not worth the cost of reporting, right? So you have to really challenge your, yourself um, to, to look and be honest about the realities of your harassment policy. And that's one example, like it it, it can be many things at your organization, your promotion uh, pathway, your path to promotion, what does that look like? What's the reality of it? Is it subjective or do you look like a leader and that's how you get promoted? Um, What is that, you know? So so you're being uh, super clear and you're creating systems, inclusive systems. Um, And think about it just like you would create A risk management system, right? Uh, You know, in risk management, you're going over, you're reviewing the incident, uh, you're you're learning from it. You know, in the outdoors, it's very prescribed. Uh, Taking something like inclusion and equity, and um, listening to stories and voices um, is important. And also um, at the organizational level, when instances do happen and they will continue to happen um, to stop, pause and treat it like a risk management incident and and learn from it Um, and feel like it's high cost, like a risk management uh, incident Um, and not some side social thing.
0: You, right. you know, that's cheap drama, right? Petty drama.
1: Yeah, it can be. It can be um, shrugged off, and that's a dominant way of dismissing that experience, right? Is by shrugging it off as less important. And so we might be doing that at, at an organizational level, shrugging these moments off, and when we should be um, seeing them as as important moments. Um, and then the other thing that came up again, I kind of touched on was. Um, authentically considering your history, your organization's history. And, uh, and that can be tough because, uh, we're still like, there's a lot of really good authors that are writing about it. Uh, but gosh, just land acquisition in North America and, um, outdoor agencies in the U.S., and laws and practices are all um, a part of this uh, dominant culture um, that it does not lift up, um, uh, that has actively discriminated, right? And so the, what we're operating off, what we've inherited today is eightly, innately <laughs> rooted in that right so Mm -hmm. we're all trying to move forward from that for tomorrow right for for and how do we want our future to look are we still kind of scrambling uh trying to piece together something that's broken something that doesn't work something that was egregious and awful to begin with um or are we trying to look at it understand it and build something better you know, and so thinking about that, maybe we can't do it on, on a large scale, but if every organization did that uh, on their own, it would collectively turn into a, a real difference in the outdoor industry, I believe.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think also in your dissertation, did you mention at the workplace providing anonymous surveys to be able to give that feedback um, or to, you know, file a complaint and that way, you know, they don't, it's, it's anonymous. So let's say for that way, Was that mentioned in your dissertation? Or am I remembering something else?
1: Yeah. I don't know that anonymous, like anonymous surveys can be good, but they're, mm-hmm. uh, what's the organization doing with them? Do the employees trust that they're actually anonymous? Um, you know, so many times you have, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm the only queer faculty member. Uh, in my, uh, department, right. Or my program. And so if I were to fill out something that says right. something about being queer, like, is it anonymous really? No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there are, a, they're going to know it's me that says right. That, right. I mean, maybe it's an ally, but it, it, depending how I write, you know, so we, we do have to, and there are lots of allies in the department. So maybe someone would say something on my behalf or on mm. behalf of all of us to create a better workplace. But a lot of times, uh, you know, it's up to that one person. So you, you have to, anonymous surveys can be good, um, but I would say there's enough research now. We've come a long way uh, that organizations have the ability to make this happen on their own. You can, you can look at your fiscal plan and hire a consultant, like have a goal for that. Um, there are steps that you can take, like like having a consultant to come in and help you build a policy, help you build a, di- a diversity, equity and inclusion um, uh, strategic plan. And then mm-hmm. holding yourself accountable with stakeholders in the public with that plan and having... Uh, I think people are doing that and, and the, the research, you know, showed that there are organizations that are actively doing that and have been for a long time, and this is still happening. And so uh, really it's looking at those policies and practices and how that is translated into uh, your instructors. Cause again, in the outdoors, people go out into their satellite worlds and work. Um, and it's just dependent on who that group of people is in that space, um, what kind of space they're holding. Are they, are they repeating dominant culture to discriminate? You know, or, or are they um, holding each other accountable to an inclusive group? You know, like it, it just depends, like each group has its own group culture when, when right. they go out there and it's hard for an organization to control that. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things to do is making it, uh, not cool to be discriminatory, right? Like having systems in place, it's not part of your, your culture to even have these subtle things, right? And if we're saying, if we're passing along uh, acronyms or, gosh, there's so many things that are rooted. Have you ever um, accidentally said a phrase and someone's like, ooh, you shouldn't say that. That's not nice. Um, and you're like, gosh, I had no idea that that meant this. That's awful. I had no idea, you know. And so in the outdoors, we can pass those along. Um without knowing and yeah. it's important that, that we, um, you know, lovingly call each other on it, educate each other. I wouldn't say call each other, but just like educate each other and have a discourse about it and chat about it. Yeah.
0: It, it's amazing how far that the education component can go with actually creating change. Like, I mean, I think we rely on it pretty heavily with, you know, being an academia and whatnot, but it's, it's proven. Uh, Education certainly helps a lot. And I know that some of the quotes in your dissertation talked about guides singling out um, queer uh, clients that were out there and uh, really being an awful presence to the people that were out there. And I couldn't believe that that had happened. Um, So, yeah, so those trainings and whatnot so that they know how to act out in these really isolated places where you're kind of forming this community with people is super important. Um, I have a a question for you, a little bit on a tangent here. We've been talking about this heteronormative dominance. And have you ever – so the author Alan Moore, who wrote V for Vendetta, um, Watchmen, he also wrote a book called The Mirror of Love. And it's an epic poem that details the history of heteronormative dominance. And uh, I don't know when he wrote it. Like maybe – late nineties or so, but it's, I recommend checking it out. I read it a couple times and I think it starts with the history back in ancient Greece and then brings it all the way to uh, present. And it's, it's a really cool one. And, um, so again, that's the mirror of love by Alan Moore. And it's something that, um, I read it once and immediately read it twice because it was, it's very impactful. Uh, so, okay. So that was a really great conversation about your research. Um, and one of the, reasons i want to have you on here is i wanted to celebrate your research i thought it was such a cool thing that you've done um and you know just really happy for you getting your position at nau it's such a cool place and so i wanted to kind of just conclude our episode today and hear about um have you planned out any outdoor adventures for 2023 for yourself
1: oh yes (laughs) well right now i'm just focused on snow i'm pretty excited for that Um, yeah yeah and i might be working in the field this summer um, okay so so that's also exciting uh but yeah not uh just since we just got to flagstaff we're not doing any big trips um you know just trying to, to Explore here and see what's around us. Our new home. there's a lot, so. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, you got Grand Canyon to the north, Sedona so to the south, and you got Flagstaff itself. I mean, yeah, like it's like you don't need to travel too far to get into a lot of adventure. You're lucky, it's cool, it, uh,
1: yeah. It's been fun, and just like popping over to the Grand Canyon to do a loop real quick, like, yeah, it's it's been just so nice, and uh, it, yeah, I've been very fortunate.
0: It is fun. So, how far is the drive from? Flagstaff to the North Rim of the Grand Canyon?
1: Ooh. Uh, oh, I should know this. I've been there it's a couple It's probably like four times. or five hours? Yeah, it's about four. Yeah, I'd say four or five. Yeah.
0: Okay. I've yeah. never driven to the North Rim. I've done the Rim to Rim to Rim trail run, um, and that's how I ended up on the North Rim. But uh, gosh, if I lived in Flagstaff, I would be appealed to go camp on the North Rim. And just, you know, have a little bit of solitude on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Um, well, the reason I asked you about what adventures you have coming up is because every year in January, um, I end up planning out my uh, summer adventures for the most part and getting that kind of dialed in into the family calendar and whatnot. And so January is always kind of the new year is always kind of a fun time for me to be looking ahead and uh, getting excited for the summertime, despite that it's still January.
1: Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, I. I uh Uh, volunteer with our adaptive snow skiing um group here uh once a week and uh so really that's been on my mind for spring break and whatnot i'm I'm just psyched to have more time to to ski with them
0: yeah oh my Uh, gosh that's gonna be so fun
1: uh, gosh
0: well dr heath Uh, It has been amazing having you on here. I want to say thank you uh, sincerely for coming on here. I know I I sent you a cold email and said, hey, do you want to come on Old Bodies Outside? You're probably, what the heck is that? I don't know. And um, I'm really, really appreciative that you obliged and you're like, yeah, I'm into it. And uh, we had a great conversation today. I think this is something that's really wonderful. Um, I'm just really happy to celebrate the great research that you've done. And I'm really excited for what the future holds for you. I think um, you're going to do a lot of good for our field and hopefully you and I get to finally meet in person at a conference sometime.
1: Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> so good. Thank you so much. I sure appreciate uh, being on and getting to talk about it.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. OK, well, I'm going to throw in that outro music and we'll call it an episode. Nice.